Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby, who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. This podcast is brought to you by the film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn with an incredible ensemble that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, and Whoopi Goldberg. Ezra is a funny and endearing story about Max, a divorced father struggling to co-parent his autistic son, Ezra. When faced with difficult decisions about the future, they embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Deadline calls Ezra a touching testament to the power of love. In theaters May 31st. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hi, this is Laura Vanderkam. I'm a mother of four, an author, journalist, and speaker. And this is Sarah Hart Unger. I'm a mother of three, practicing physician, and blogger on the side. We are two working parents who love our careers and our families. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. Here we talk about how real women manage work, family, and time for fun. From figuring out childcare to mapping out long-term career goals, we want you to get the most out of life. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. This is episode 119. Today, we're going to be interviewing Jennifer Petrillieri, who is the author of the new book, Couples That Work. And she has studied the issue of dual income couples. And as you might imagine from the title of the book, how they work. And so I know that's a topic of interest to a lot of our listeners. So we are very much looking forward to that. Uh, so Sarah, you are, uh, speaking of dual career couples, you, you're coming into a pretty busy season as as this is airing, right? Yeah, I feel like I've discovered the residency equivalent of the accounting pre-tax, <laughs> which <laughs> is interview season and recruitment season, where I get to flip into sales mode for approximately three months. So we do 14 in our program, 14 interview days and interview a total of 140 candidates. Wow, that's a lot of candidates. That. Yeah, that's a lot. And I'm going to meet all of them and do presentations in front of all of them. And there's a lot of other stuff going on. So it's it's full, but it's good. It's yeah. good. I'm yeah. not drowning. Well, full, full is yes. good. And, and you chose to take on this new role. And yes, so, and so I'm that... doing, you know, less proportionally 
I tried to arrange my call schedule. So I'm taking very little call during this time. So it should be, it should be a fine balance. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, but you, you mentioned like when you, we decided to interview Jennifer and you were picking up her book, you, you were a little nervous about what her conclusion was. Was her conclusion, well, you were worried it was going to be like, you're screwed. <laughs> I actually, like, as soon as I saw the title of the book, I was like, we must have this woman on our podcast. Like, perfect. What a best of both worlds idea. But then I felt like it was high pressure. Like, what if her, it, it seemed like a very well-researched book. So I was concerned that maybe her conclusion would be that, oh, only one partner can lead. And, you know, the other person has to take a sort of secondary. I don't know. I was just nervous that maybe its conclusions wouldn't be favorable to my hopes and dreams, perhaps. But <laughs> the opposite was definitely true, which made this book really empowering more than many of the recent books on this topic. <laughs> it's, it's well, it's a perpetual perennial topic um, that uh, we're all trying to but she figure out in a very like analytical way. And I guess her conclusions could have been terrible. It wasn't like her writing out of any kind of anger. I don't feel like she had an agenda. I feel like she really went in with an exploratory uh, mindset. And so it was cool to find out that her findings actually turned out to be on the positive side. Yeah. So that's awesome. And and I know that Sarah had mentioned this is one of her favorite books uh, in the nonfiction category read in 2019. So high praise for couples that work. So we're excited to welcome Jennifer. Well, Sarah and I are excited to welcome Jennifer Petrillieri to the program. She is the author of Couples at Work. Uh, Jennifer, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, thanks for having me on. So I'm a professor of organizational behavior at INSEAD, which is a business school in France. I'm part of a, a working couple. I'm a mother of two. And for the last six years, I've been researching working couples and what makes couples work over their working life together. And the result is this book that we're talking about together today. Yes. And I gave our listeners a little bit of an intro to this book um, already. And I mentioned that this is a very research-driven book. So can you tell them a little bit about the methods that you use? I believe you interviewed over 100 couples um, to come to some of the conclusions and themes that you came to. Yeah. And I really wanted to make it a research book because there's so little out there that talks about how we can combine our careers together and both have good careers and a healthy relationship. And so I set about following the lives of more than 100 working couples. And I was really looking for diverse couples so I could look across the lifestyle and life, um, life stages. So these are couples from their late 20s, 30s, 40s, all the way through to late 60s and into retirement. They're couples from across the world, gay, straight, some intercultural marriages, real rich diversity there. And what that allowed me to do was really look for the themes that cut across couples. Totally cool. And you did find many themes and a lot of it had to do with kind of different stages and what tends to happen at each stage. And in fact, um, the book is based uh, very chronologically, which makes it very engaging to read the way you kind of go through and, and, and hear about couples in their infancy and kind of the honeymoon period. And then there are three transitions. Can you tell our listeners about those transitions? Yeah, so where the transitions came from in the research was that I found that it wasn't always challenging for dual career couples, but neither was it always a smooth ride. And I found that the challenges tended to cluster around these three points, which in the book I call the three transitions. Um, 
And the things that trigger these transitions tend to be fairly predictable across couples. Although, of course, the unique things that are going on in couples' lives are, are, are specific to each couple. So the first transition comes for all couples, regardless of when they get together, in the first few years of their relationship. And this is triggered by the first big life event that creates a hard choice for couples. So this might be a geographic move, right? One of us got offered a great job opportunity on the other side of the country. What do we do? Do we move together? Does one person follow? Do we try and do commuting relationships? This is really an end to that parallel living we have in our honeymoon period. It might be the arrival of a first child. All of us who are working parents know that is an end to parallel living. You know, for couples who get together later in life, it might be something like a decision. Do we blend families from previous relationships? So all of these things make us have to face the question, how can we make this work? How can we combine our lives in a way that enables us to both pursue the careers we want and also to to have a great relationship and, and the family life we want as well. So that's the first transition. And it's very, the first, well, I know you're going to go through all three, but actually I'll stop for a second on transition one because I know so many of our listeners are either there or remember just coming out of there. Um, and the powerful, you know, vignette from the book is, is a couple where the woman like literally delivers a baby and her husband, like as the baby is born, goes, hey, I got promoted and I'm taking this new job right now, like without even talking to her. And I mean, I know our listeners can kind of, you know, their hair stands on end maybe when they hear that story. What are, before we move on, what are some of the the strategies that make couples survive that first transition intact? Yeah. So let me start with what we get wrong, because this is really important. What the, the classic mistake of couples in the first transition is to focus on the practicalities. So like childcare, geography, finances, um, you know, spare bedrooms. Um, and it's natural in, in a way we're programmed to focus on those practicalities, right? Stuff needs to get done. Decisions need to get made. But the problem is whenever we're at these junctures where we have that initial hard choice, the, the decision is never about the money. It's never about the childcare. The decision is really about what is the deal in our couple? How are we going to prioritize our careers, for example? Where does the power lie? Who gets to choose? All these real fundamental questions around what is the deal behind our relationship? What matters most to us? And so the couples who get through the first transition, relatively unscathed, it's, of course, it's challenging for us all, right? are couples who really start with those principles of the relationship. So rather than diving straight into the practicalities, they take some time to think about, you know, what really matters to us? What are the yardsticks by which we're going to measure our life? And therefore, what should our decisions be based on? And when couples find some common ground and really have an understanding of what matters to each other in their careers, but also what matters to them in their couple, what kind of couple they're trying to become, then they can layer the practicalities on top. And then there's a logic to the decisions they've made. And what I find is that if couples don't start with those principles, then what happens is they can spend their lives syncing Google calendars and dividing up chores, and they still don't get anywhere. And so I'm sure many of your listeners um, identify with this, that, you know, you can feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall. You know, we're constantly talking about logistics. If you find yourself in that situation, it's very likely that the issue is not the logistics. The issue is that you haven't got sorted 
really the logic underneath that around what you both want and how you're going to support each other in getting it. And to take the time to really have those those deep conversations in a very deliberate way. Absolutely. It seems yeah. like you advocated for. I like one line that you mentioned, and this does kind of relate to logistics, but you say something like, here's my quote. While a noble ideal, I have found that couples who negotiate their logistics well, that is, they are happy with the division of labor, do not resent each other and can still push forward in their careers, are those who divide tasks deliberately, not necessarily equally. So I thought yeah, that was a great... And I think there's a lot of advice out there like this, this ideal or myth of the 50-50 marriage, as if, I don't know what people do, mark off on a chart every time they do the washing up or something. <laughs> this you mop exactly half the floor. Is, yeah. is how it works. <laughs> you mop exactly half the floor. I mean, I think, you know, it's great in an ideal, but in practice, like, what does that really mean? And I think we can kill ourselves trying to reach these ideals rather than thinking, okay, what do we really want? What's important to us? And then going for it. And if it's not exactly 50-50, it doesn't matter as long as we're both happy with it. I love it. Okay, well, as we kind of transition to the sec to T2 or, or, or to stage two after T1, um, I was struck by your three career priority models, which kind of come to be, I guess, after couples have survived through that very first transition. And I was really actually empowered by some of your findings um, related to the primary secondary versus turn taking versus dual primary. Can you speak about that? Yeah. So one of the key things couples need to decide on in this first transition is what is their career prioritization model? So primary secondary is maybe what we think of as the classic career prioritization model where both people have careers, but one person's takes the primary career takes more priority. So if there's a geographic move, they would lead that. If there's, you know, late working, they would get priority or work travel. And the other person still has a good career, but they take the lead at home. Then there's turn taking where couples just take turns to have the primary career and the secondary career. And the third is double primary, which a lot of people are doing these days of the younger generation, which is they set some boundaries. So, for example, you know, we're never going to leave Chicago, but within that, we're both going to try and have full careers. And I was really interested when I went into my research is which is the best, right? Which is the most successful? And when I say successful, of course, I don't mean which is most likely that you become the CEO. I mean, which is, are you most likely to be fulfilled in, you're thriving in your career and in your relationship? And when I did a first analysis of the data, it looked like the double primary was the most successful. And initially I was like, yes, because this is my model. <laughs> and then I was a little bit suspicious because any researcher can tell you that their data tends to tell you what you want to hear the first time you analyze it. Yes, and like so funny I, that. I found what I was looking for, exactly. Yeah, I what I for. <laughs> so I went back in to the data. And of course, there were successful couples in each model. So I took those out and looked, okay, what's really the commonality among them? And what I found was very simple, actually. The couples that worked were couples who'd very explicitly negotiated what their model was. Now, the only reason there were more double primaries is it's such a difficult model. It's so challenging with so many balls in the air to juggle that you have to have those conversations, right? It forces you into those conversations. 
And the reason I love this finding is it's like anything can work. There's no prescriptions. It's the way you go about the choice that matters. And I think like you, I found this incredibly freeing because I think all working couples are fed up of being told what they should do. And this finding was like, it really doesn't matter what you do. It's all about the way in which you get to that decision. Well, and the truth is in mainstream media and in other books that are maybe less research and more just someone's opinion, we're not told that, that like we're told the exact opposite. So it was incredibly refreshing um, to see that you actually looked at this and, you know, not only, yes, maybe double primary, even one in your first glance, but even the finding that they all work. I feel like that's, that's exciting yeah. enough and, yeah. and was one of my favorite parts about reading your book. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to take a quick break and then move on to the phase of interdependence. Hey listeners, every parent wants their child to get better grades and higher test scores, but that's not always easy. So my solution is Varsity Tutors. Before Varsity Tutors, you only had a few options like selecting a tutor based on random recommendations or spending a small fortune at a local tutoring center hoping for the best. And the truth is, if you really want to ensure the confidence and educational success of your child, Varsity Tutors is the best option around. My seventh grader, Jasper, has been using Varsity Tutors for the past few months, and we love it. He gets good grades, like he actually has straight A's, but he wanted to work on his writing skills and taking it to the next level. So he and his writing tutor meet every week online, so it's very convenient. They focus on his sentence structure, on thesis statements, on all that stuff that theoretically as a writer, I could teach him, but somehow when it's mom, it doesn't work. So we're really glad to tap into this option to have him get the boost he needs uh, with without it hurting our relationship too. So whether it's in person or online, Varsity Tutors connects students with expert instructors in everything from phonics to SAT prep. Varsity Tutors has a rigorous tutor vetting process that ensures your child is working with the best. So to receive up to $250 and a free consultation with an education director, go to varsitytutors.com slash best of. That's varsitytutors.com slash best of for $250 off. Give your child the confidence and keys to success today at varsitytutors.com slash best of. And listeners, we also want to remind you about BetterHelp. If there's something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, you owe it to yourself to do something about it. And BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. So it's very convenient for people who are working and raising families but want to prioritize their mental health. Get help on your own time and at your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions plus chat and text with your therapist. There are licensed professional counselors who specialize in anything you might want to discuss from depression and stress and anxiety to relationship issues, grief, and self-esteem. Anything you share is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time. And best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Best of Both Worlds podcast listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code BESTOF. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash best of. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and you'll get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash best of. Okay, we are back. And as we've just talked about moving through that first transition, um, the next phase is something called interdependence, I believe. And then comes transition two. Can you talk a little bit more about this next phase? 
Yeah, so the next phase is a relatively stable period in between the first two transitions. And I say relatively because, of course, it depends on how well couples navigate that first transition. So couples who take the time to really explicitly negotiate that career prioritization model, who really think mindfully about the logistics, tend to have a period which is fairly plain sailing. Now, of course, life happens, right? We all have kids that get sick or work emergencies. But without that, as a couple in themselves, there tends to be a stable period. For couples who worked through that transition a little less well, that road may be maybe more bumpy, of course. But eventually, all couples reach the second transition point. And what's interesting about this transition point is it's not linked to the stage of our couple. It's linked to the stage of our career. So transition one, you go through eventually, whether you get together at 18, 38 or 68, you're still going to get to it. Transition two is a transition which is linked to the midpoint of our careers. And it's really important to understand the psychology behind this, because if we think of our careers in our 20s and 30s, where many of your listeners are right now, um, it's a stage where we're striving for a lot, right? We're building our careers, we're getting our foot on the ladder, we're building our relationships. For some of us, we might be building a family as well. And the path we take is always a mix between what we want and social expectations. Now, we never like to admit that, but it's true. The path we choose is a mix of, you know, for example, you know, our parents were doctors, so we use them as role models, or our peers at at college were all applying for this, this great industry, which was hot at that time, so we did as well. Or, you know, this is what smart things, what smart kids do in our culture. And in many ways, that's not a bad thing, right? Those are people who care about us, they love us, they want us to be successful. And so we get on a good track. But what happens at mid-career point is many of us start to feel, maybe this isn't really what I want to be doing. And that may not be wholesale change, right? I want to go and start up a company that make cupcakes or, or something really radical. It might just be you know, I just feel like I need to reorient. It's not quite the direction I want. And it's a time of quite emotional turmoil. And for anyone who's in that stage right now, they'll know it. There's a lot of existential questions, right? What do I really want in my life? What do I want in my relationship? Um, Which direction do I want to go in? There's also a feeling, and I'm at this stage now, so I personally identify with it. There's a feeling that You know, I still have a lot of my career left, but if I want to make a shift in direction, it's now. You know, there's more of a sense of urgency around finding that path because I've not got forever left, right? It's it's not quite a now or never situation, but there is a sense of urgency. And this, this existential questioning puts a lot of pressure on couples because when we see our partners wrestling with these questions it's very easy to feel threatened in our relationship right maybe this is my fault maybe there's something wrong with our relationship maybe they're not happy because i'm doing something wrong and this is a time where there's a lot of conflict in couples as both people try and wrestle through these questions and what i find at this point is what really helps couples is to change the way we think of how we support each other so classically when we think of a supportive relationship a romantic supportive relationship we think of the kind of good old british tea and sympathy right so we think of like i'm going to tell you everything's going to be okay and i'll plump up your self esteem and make you feel great about yourself and that's wonderful right who doesn't like that 
But that's exactly what we do not need at this stage. Because if we're wrestling with those existential questions, we don't need to be in our comfort zone. We've got to get out of our comfort zone to explore different options and find a way forward. And if we stay in that comfort zone, we essentially stay stuck. And so couples have to shift their model of support from being this kind of very cozy, very close support to being what I call in the book a secure base. Now, what a secure base is, is yes, it has that nice cozy support, but it also has essentially a loving kick up the ass, right, which is a push out of the comfort zone to say, I know you are struggling but you cannot stay in this comfort zone, right? You've got to get out, which also means a movement away from the safety of the relationship to explore new territories, to think of new options, to experiment with different paths. Now, this is really hard to do in a couple because when we're feeling threatened, our natural tendency is to hold our partner close. It's very normal. And we have to almost override that to be like, okay, I've got to have the courage to say what my partner needs is actually for me to let go and push them away for them to explore and discover, and then kind of rejoin afterwards. It's a really tricky thing to do in a couple. Yeah, that sounds very difficult. And I'm sure this is why sort of the whole midlife crisis um, narrative, you wind up with a lot of people splitting up and you know, we're, best case scenario, hopefully there's just like a red sports car involved and, you know, you just uh, um, go from that. Um, but but then, you know, if the couples that sort of make it through that, then then the third transition is, is sort of even more broad of this, like, what we want out of life, I guess. Is, Absolutely. Is I and I also think it's worth talking about the period in between, because what I find mm-hmm. is, yes, if you look at divorce statistics, it is there is a peak for divorce around that time. However, The couples who can provide this secure base support to each other and make it through very often enjoy a period of real renewal in their relationship and in their careers. So this period after the second transition is a really exciting, growthful period. And so I think it's important that your listeners understand it's not like slogging through the trenches and, oh, we collapse on the other side. It's like, it's really, if we slog through those trenches, we can get to an amazing new pasture. And many couples at this stage have a period of incredible growth after it. And then eventually they come to the third transition. And the third transition is at a time when our social roles are changing, right? So we're no longer the bright young thing that's climbing up the ladder and kind of setting the world on fire. We no longer, if we're parents, those active hands-on parents, maybe our children are at college or just about to leave for college. So it's a time of huge change. And it's really this mixed world. So on the one hand, there can be a sense of loss, especially for women, honestly, you know, losing that full-time mother role is, is, is quite shocking for many of us and for fathers as well. And and also this loss that, you know, I'm not this high potential thing anymore. I'm, you know, the leaders or the mentors of them, if I'm lucky. Um, but it's also a time of enormous opportunity. And this is because the structure of our careers is changing. So partly it's because our lives are getting longer, which means our careers are getting longer. So if you rewind 30 years, this transition came at a point that was very close to retirement. So we were essentially on the down ramp of our careers. But it now comes at a time in our mid-50s where we've definitely got 10, maybe 15, even 20 years of our careers left. So we have a shot at really doing something different. 
And it also comes at a time in our structure of society and organization that our career paths are very different from how they were. It's no longer that we just climb one ladder. There's huge opportunities with the gig economy, for example, for freelancing, portfolio work, entrepreneurship. There's different career options that we enjoy that no previous generation has had access to. And in our 30s and 40s, they can be harder to grasp because, quite frankly, we have responsibilities. We have a mortgage. We have college fees on the horizon. We are We're distracted to- by the logistics of life. <laughs> we can hold it all together desperately. I'm right in the middle of it. I know. But, but when we get to that slightly later period, many of those commitments are behind us or close to being behind us. You know, kids have gone through college. The mortgage may be paid off. We've done that career striving. And suddenly we can do the things that people at my stage in their mid-40s are kind of saying, well, one day I would love to do some volunteer or I'd love to do something in the community or I'd love to go on a board of a not-for-profit. Suddenly those horizons are open. So the trick for couples at this stage is to, you know, not get stuck in those losses, but really broaden their horizons and say, okay, I don't just need to focus on my career, my relationship, children, then fall into bed at the end of the day and wake up again and repeat, you know, I can really broaden those horizons and open up. But oftentimes for couples, this is a tricky time relationally because the project that holds many couples together for decades is children. And when children go, you know, many people said to me, you know, sort of woke up and and thought, who are you? You know, that we've we've been living together all this time, but we've grown apart, even though we've been under the same house. So there can be a lot of relationship repair work to do in in that transition to enable couples to grab that wealth of opportunities. Wow. A lot well, I guess, or you to. could just, you know, spread out your children enough that you're still in the. <laughs> that in you're the doing kids. that forever. I did have that forever. <laughs> <You're laughs> five years, and you're fine. <laughs> exactly. Well, I have, I have one question for you, more personal, uh, Jennifer, which is: after doing all this research, what, if any, changes did you make in your own relationship or relationship with your career or your partner, based on your research? Yeah, so it's kind of therapy of sorts, right? And I, I know, um, you know, Sigmund Freud always said all all social science is autobiographical, and I completely agree with that. Um, it did. I think the one thing in terms of my personal career, and then I'll come on to my relationship, is it really made me start thinking more broadly. I think, you know, I'm 43 now, and I think, you know, I've I'm really I've been in that period of striving, 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 building, 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 and I think I I'd got some tunnel vision, and I think many people do at that stage. It's like next step, next step, and it's really made me start to look broader. Now I'm not. My husband jokes when I say this. Like, I'm not quite ready to jack it all in and buy the ski chalet and move to Switzerland, although that is coming at some point. <laughs> but um, but I'm certainly thinking more broadly in terms of what's next, rather than just kind of this tunnel vision. And and that's really been quite eye opening for me. And I think in terms of um, in terms of our relationship, I mean, it's somehow brought us closer together. You know, talking about all these other couples and discussing the book and and things. And I also think it's made us start thinking about that third transition because we're not there yet, but, you know, we're both mid-40s. It's not that far away. 
you know, our son started at middle school, he turned 11. And, you know, the shock that suddenly you're buying someone a mobile phone and, and all this sort of stuff is this realization that he's lived at home longer than he's ever going to live at home in total really starts us getting in touch with the fact that actually we are going to be empty nesters in not that long a period of time. And how are we going to prepare for that transition in a way that we're still close together and we're not dealing with regrets? Yeah. Wow. So cool. So inspiring. I, Laura, do you have any other questions for Jennifer? Um, no, I mean, I guess one question is if you are realizing that you need to approach this conversation deliberately, as you said, what makes couples work is that they have deliberate conversations. I mean, we are a logistical podcast here. How do you recommend it? I mean, like, honey, I got some deep questions we need to talk about. Like, yeah. what, what are there good ways to kind of approach this conversation? Yeah. So first of all, it's a set of conversations. It's not a one-off. And it's really important to recognize that because it's not like, okay, I'm going to go home tonight and we're going to fix everything. Tonight oh, is the night. <laughs> Although there were some, there were some vignettes where it sounds like there were like very intense weekends where these couples would yeah. have these like life-changing, epic, kind of like before sunrise kind of like yeah, yeah, yeah. dates. So, <laughs> they had conversations. So tonight I do recommend you take the bull by the horns. And if there's one thing I would recommend, it was sort of if you have kids, you know, put the kids in bed, take some time, put the phones away so you have some undivided attention and take some time reflecting on three things together. And it might be that you take a few notes on your own first and then sort of discuss together. Or it might be that you just talk about them. Um, I'm kind of a little doodler, so I would doodle first. But the first one is what really matters to us. Now, this might include your personal career goals. Also, what matters to you as a couple? What kind of couple do you want to be, right? An adventurous couple, a couple who's really embedded in the community, whatever that is. It might be some goals, some financial goals, right? What's really important to us, maybe we want to build a, a nest egg big enough so that when we get to that second transition, we can afford to take a radical career change. You know, it might be goals around the family, goals around location. It's really important to find some common ground in that area and discuss them. First of all, so you really understand what your partner wants and how you can support them and vice versa. But also it makes decisions easier, right? If you're clear on what your priorities are, when things come up, it's easier to say, well, do they align? Is that going to help us get to where we want to go or not? And if the answer is no, don't do it. One of the biggest traps we fall into as working as a working couple is we take on too much, right? We're like the kids in the sweet shop. We can't say no to things, which is is really the path to hell, right, when we start doing that stuff. The second thing to talk through is what are the lines we're not going to cross? This is slightly more difficult to talk about because you need to have some common ground here. Um, it's not like career goals where they're obviously going to be different. But it's really important to know this because it defines what's the field we're playing on, right? So it might be a geographical line. You know, we're just going to be based in this city or these few cities. And even if you get an amazing career opportunity, but it's somewhere else, the answer is no. You've got to know the play, field, playing field. It's also really important to think about lines around time. How many hours a week do you need to work for it to really negatively impact my career? If that's explicit, we can see when we're getting close to this point where we're going to start hurting each other. Likewise, maybe work travel for those of your listeners who they or their partner travels a lot. Again, it's a really important boundary to negotiate. What's too much? You know, what's too much for my career? What's too much for our family if we have one? You know, what's too much for our relationship? And it's really counterintuitive because we're brought up in a culture that tells us more choice is better. 
But that's not what the research shows at all. The research shows very strongly that the more choice we have, the harder it is to choose and the more likely we are to regret our choices. So actually having these lines restricts our choices, which is a very, very good thing for us in this day and age. And the final thing and the things which is probably hardest to talk about, which is why you want to talk about it last, (laughs) is, is what are the things we're worried about happening? What are our fears in this relationship? And that's very important because very often our fears are baseless. So I remember talking to one couple who were thinking about having children and she he had a very mobile job. He was on the road a lot. And she was really wor- worried that if they had kids, she would be like by far and away taking the majority of the child rearing responsibilities. So she was kind of delaying this, even though she really wanted children. And I spoke to him and he said, you know, I can't wait for us to be pregnant because I've already found the role that I'm going to move to because I don't want to miss out on the parenting. And so they were, they'd reached this real roadblock around kids for no reason other than she was so afraid that this thing, which she'd convinced herself would happen, would happen. They were getting themselves in a real mess. And so it's really important to share our fears because firstly, they may be baseless. And secondly, if our partner understands them, they're much more likely to be sensitive around them and help us. So it, it doesn't take long. You don't need a log cabin with a fire roaring. Just take some time tonight to start that conversation and make talking about those things into the fabric of your relationship, that it becomes a habit that you revisit ever so often. And it becomes part of one of the conversations that's alive in your couple. That's great advice. I love it. Put it on the calendar. Put it on the calendar. Just do it. Just do it. Just do it. Well, especially if you don't need the log cabin, although that sounds yeah. really, really nice. Actually, does. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, Jennifer, we always we always end. Um, when we have our guests a segment we call Love of the Week, um, mm-hmm. which is just something that is floating our boats uh, at this particular moment. Something good in our life. It can be broad or specific, and we can go first so that you can uh, yeah. listen to ours and, and see if you'd uh, have have one you'd like to contribute. So, Sarah, what what do you have for us this week? Yeah, so believe it or not, we, my husband and I, are off tomorrow. We're basically sending the kids to our nannies for Friday night and Saturday night and taking Friday off from work to have a little couples staycation. So what a perfect opportunity to have some couples that work kind of conversations and also just relax and have fun. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah, love of the week. Yeah, they've been looking forward to this for a while. They had a they had a couples trip weekend trip this summer that got canceled due to some unfortunate. Circumstances, oh, so it's really this good. is our makeup, <laughs> the makeup for that. So that's great. Yeah, um, we're we well similarly not getting away, but we are definitely having a big conversation this weekend about a lot of sort of big choices related to home renovation or whether we're moving or you know the the various logistical things that need to happen ahead of this this next baby, and so. That's I, I actually like the idea of knowing there is a time to discuss this. And that makes me feel like, okay, good. Now I don't have to think about it the rest of the time because we're going to think about it for this particular period of time. And I'm hoping we emerge with some clarity. So having that on the calendar, the discussion is, is my love of the week. Well, my love of the week, and I'm about to show this to Sarah and Laura over, over the webcam, is these two chipmunks. Ooh, I love them. That I picked up in Central Park. So I do not travel a lot for work, and I'm on the road for three weeks. I'm going home at weekends. But my ch- I have two children, and these chipmunks are now Pietro and Ariana. 
And I've been taking photos of them everywhere I went and sending them back to the kids. And it has made such a difference. So the kids are now so excited about where they're going to see the chipmunks next and how are the chipmunks. And they know that when I get home, they will get the chipmunks. So top tip for any traveling parents, buy some chipmunks. (laughs) They are totally cute. And that is a great love of the week. That is awesome. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for for sharing your wisdom and for for joining us today. And and for all our listeners, um, please pick up a couple of uh, pick up a copy of her book, Couples That Work, um, and get some great more advice of, about how to make your relationship work. So, Jennifer, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that was an awesome interview. Um, we're going to move on to our Q and A which has to do with a slightly different topic of evenings and energy levels after work. Perhaps something that people are figuring out as they're going through that first transition that Jennifer talked about. All right, here we go. I'm finding that I often don't enjoy evenings, and I think it's because I have difficulty managing my energy level after work. I often feel drained. As an introvert, I really need time to myself to recharge, but To spend time with my son, I wait until after he goes to bed. We have about two hours together in the evening. Much of that time is centered around dinner, bath, and getting him ready for bed with some extra time for walks and play and reading books. But I'd like to have more energy in general to enjoy this time with him more. The person writes, I know you are an introvert as well, Laura, and was hoping you'd have some tips for better evenings. I don't feel like shifting my schedule to wake up earlier and get off of work earlier is a good option for me um, because my 6 a.m. to 6.30 wake up is as early as I've ever been able to convince myself to do. (laughs) Yeah, probably me too. I I really resent the idea of setting an alarm for anything before 6 and 5. 5 is dropped out. Never before 5. So two reasons that this one's for you. This one's for (laughs) me. me. And, you know, I, I get it. I mean, I'm, I am quite introverted. Um, you, you wouldn't necessarily know that uh, from meeting me, but it's, it's not about ability to interact in social situations. It's more that you get your energy uh, recharged from being alone. And I definitely like to, say, sit with my coffee and read a book, and that's what charges me up for the day, whereas being in a room with, like, 15 people kind of makes me feel like I need to take a little break after a while. Um, but fortunately, I spend my day in a home office where absolutely no one can bother me without my permission, which is awesome. So um, given that that is not the reality for our listener who has written in that she's in an office where there are people bugging her all day about various things, I think she needs to view her commute as, as some of this me time slash decompression time. Like, so maybe she needs silence on the way home. Um, it may be that she's been stacking in calls in order to leave earlier or something. That's probably not a great idea. Like, why, why don't we just leave this as, as open space? Maybe you could listen to not even voices. Like podcasts are awesome. You should love, definitely listen to best of both worlds, but maybe do that in the morning. Like on the way home, listen to, I don't know, movie soundtracks or classical music or something that's very sort of soaring and uplifting, but not words that you feel like you need to be listening to. Um, You could even build in a small stop on the way home. Like 10 minutes is not much in the grand scheme of things. Uh, But having, say, 10 minutes where you drive by a park uh, on your way home, um, go walk around for 10 minutes and then get back in your car might make you feel like, oh, I've had this me time. I've had some silence. I've decompressed. And now I can go into the demands of being a mom for the evening and and I'll be okay. So, you know, or you're just read in a parking lot. If there's no conveniently placed park on your commute, like just pull into a McDonald's parking lot and read in a 
book in there and then go home. Um, but but building in that 10 minutes is not huge in the grand scheme of things um, in terms of when you're getting home, but I think will help you feel completely different uh, about the situation. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I um, we definitely have a lot of a routine. So I don't know. When you have a toddler, sometimes it is hard to convince yourself to do something in the evening because you might break that magical bedtime spell. But I say maybe take yourself out of the equation. Did you say that already, Laura? I don't think you did. Like one no, or two nights well, a week. So take one night off. Yeah, like yeah. take a night off or something. See if you can arrange that either with childcare or your partner. And then I also find that especially if there's one kid, you can kind of stretch out the parts you like and maybe minimize the parts you don't. So if bath is annoying, maybe don't do a bath every day and do like a longer book reading session or a longer, maybe you like bath and do like a really nice long bath. I mean, whatever it is to minimize the pain of it feeling like a slog, because it can. And it's okay. You don't have to be guilty about that or tell yourself that you're supposed to be enjoying every second of this bedtime routine that you do seven nights a week. I mean... Reality yeah, is yeah, you're not going to enjoy it and it's tough and, and adding a layer of guilt about not enjoying it is only going to further take away enjoyment. So try to make it the best of what you've got, I guess. Yeah, I would say also just with needing to relax and recharge um, and, and chasing around a toddler is very not conducive to that. But if you can strap them into something that helps a lot. So definitely work that walk angle. Like uh, if you can build in some time for an evening walk, if he's in the stroller, he's not going anywhere. And so you can kind of tune out a little bit. And and that can feel completely different than chasing him around the house for an equivalent period of time. So definitely look into that. I kind of like that as an introvert tech, like stick your baby in a stroller, maybe walk around to some soothing, I don't know, classical music or even Silent <laughs> some other music birds. of your yeah, <laughs> yeah. bird soundtrack. That's I like that. Yes. All right. Well, this has been uh, Best of Both Worlds. We've been talking uh, with Jennifer Petrilieri about couples that work. And we will be back next week with more on making work and life fit together. Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram. And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the Best of Both Worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.